0: And here we are continuing in our series, ID. Again, I'm Dion Garrett. I'm glad to be here with you today. And today we're going to talk about uh, how when it comes to identity, we can't go it alone. Uh, I'm going to dive into a bunch of stuff today. I'm excited about this message. I hope you're excited too. More importantly, I hope you're excited after. uh, Not just because it's over, but because of uh, what God teaches you today. So let me pray for all this. Father in heaven, we thank you for gathering us here as your people. And we thank you that you've got a word for us A word that is life-changing, a word that is impactful, a word that is true. I pray that you'd speak it clearly through me. I I surrender myself to you. And God, we surrender our hearts to you. And we ask that you you would do in us whatever it is that you see necessary or needed for us to keep growing in our understanding of who we are and in our ability to live it out. So come and abide with us. Work in us and through us. We pray it in Jesus. Amen. So in this series, ID, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about my own ID and who I am and how that has changed or my sense of self has changed over the years. And I've also been thinking a lot about my, my family, my family of origin, which is huge for any of us as we think about our ID. We think about those those places we came from or the people that we came from. And I don't know about you or what your personal experience is, but in my family story, one of the distinctives is that there is a lot of a lot of history or a lot of struggle with addiction. Now, I know addiction comes in a lot of different forms, and I think, I think a lot of us in this place, or even those of you watching online, you've, you've bumped up against this with people that you love. And in my family, primarily, it was, it was drug and alcohol related. And I just watched as I was growing up all kinds of people that I love struggling, really struggling with addiction. That included members of my own household. Um, just a few years ago, my first cousin, Scotty, Uh, died of a heroin overdose in his his late 20s. And it's just so tragic. Um, But he struggled from from teenage years uh, forward. And you you watch that, and you watch people you love struggle, and and then you also hear things like, you know, addiction is familial, or maybe it's even genetic, or maybe there's a brain chemistry that predisposes you to addiction. And so growing up that way with these people all around me, you start to get a little panicked. And you start to wonder, okay, how, how do I live my life so I can escape all of that? How do I not fall victim to the same things that they fell victim to? Well, so far so good at this point in my life. I'm 38 years old. I've not had a serious struggle with addiction like that. And I've often wondered why that is. You know, why have I been spared while other people in my family have been claimed by that? It just doesn't seem to make sense to me. And I'm the kind of guy who likes to wonder out loud sometimes, and, and so people have been kind enough to try to answer that question for me, and people have said, well, Dion, that's because you're, you're so smart, or you're so self-disciplined, or you're so filled with faith, that would never happen to you. As if smart, disciplined, faith-filled people, as if they don't struggle with addiction. We all know that's not true. But this last week, my, my wife, my, uh, my lovely wife, who, who just, she's, she's a great uh, share of thoughts with me, and uh, I just, I love the way we connect sometimes just on deeper things in life. She sent me an article that some of you may have read, uh, and it's an article all about this idea of addiction. And, and the article posed an interesting question. What if addiction is not a disease primarily? What if it's not a moral failure? What if the fuel for addiction, if not the cause, at least the fuel for addiction is isolation or disconnection. See, I want to share a little bit of that with you today. The article centered on some experiments that were done decades ago. Experiments that started off with rats. Anyone love rats? Yeah. No. Um, You know, it started with rats, our favorite things to experiment on. Um, And it started with with a single rat. They would take uh, a single rat, uh, and again, this happened decades ago, they'd put it in a cage alone, And in the cage, there would be two bottles of water. One bottle of water had just normal water, and the other bottle of water was actually drug-laced water. It was water that contained heroin or cocaine. And um, they would watch as each time the the rat in the cage would try both kinds of water and would immediately gravitate toward the drug-laced water, consuming only that water until after time it got so hooked that it eventually died. And they ran this experiment over and over again with rat after rat. The same thing happened each time, which led to the very obvious conclusion, right? Drugs are highly addictive, and with one taste, with one sample, you can become an addict for life, destroying everything, even costing you your very life. Now, now we've all seen this at work in people's lives. I just told you about my cousin. It's tragic to watch. And so it seems to make sense to us. But there was a a doctor of psychology, I I believe, in uh, Canada who who knew about these experiments that were conducted decades before, and he was curious about something. Because one of the things that he noticed was that in this experiment, the rat was always alone. So he decided to rerun the experiment under a different set of factors. And, And what he did was he created this place called Rat Park. Ew, right? <laughs> um, a place where not just one rat was put, but where a whole community of rats lived. And they lived with all kinds of colorful stuff and, and you know colorful balls and, and different activities that they could do. And they, they were living in this together. And uh, still in Rat Park, there were two bottles of water. One bottle of water that was just regular water and one that was drug-laced water. And what this guy discovered is that in Rat Park, most of the rats totally shunned the drug water completely. They would try it and they wanted nothing to do with it. On average, about a quarter of the amount of drug water was consumed as compared to over here when the rats were alone. Most surprising, none of the rats died from their drug use. All of them managed to live. None of them got so self-destructive that they, they uh, drank themselves to death. It was a fascinating discovery that maybe it's not just about the addictiveness of drugs, maybe there are some other factors at play. Well, well, so then here's what he did, is is he decided to run a hybrid of these two experiments. He started over here, and he did the same thing the same way. He put rats in a cage alone with the two kinds of water, and he allowed those rats to, you know, gravitate toward the drug water, and they did it for a consecutive 57 days, drinking the drug-laced water. Now, 57 days you know, on cocaine or heroin. I mean, that, that's a lot. If anything will get you hooked, it would be that. And then he would take that rat out of isolation in this cage and bring it back over to Rat Park and reintegrate it with the other rats. And do you know what happened? Now, now, for most of us, we'd imagine, well, after 57 days, you know, your brain chemistry is all messed up. You are hooked. You're an addict. There's no way you're getting out of it. You're kind of done. But do you know what happened when he reintroduced the rats over here in Rat Park? There was some twitches of withdrawal, because certainly there's a chemical dependency. And yet he found that all of the rats stopped their heavy use and began to reintegrate with the community. They moved off the drug water to the regular water. Rat Park alone saved them. Now, I find this fascinating. I don't know if you do or if you're just kind of lost and still creeped out by the rats. I'm not sure. But for, for me, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, and yet, and yet here's what I can say. Here's what I, I, I think when I look at that. I think, man, isn't this incredible? I mean, for, for years we've thought that addiction was a result of a moral failure, it was a result of, of brain chemistry or family history. And so our response to addiction has been, well, you got to punish people, you got to make the punishment so severe that they don't want to do it, you've got to show tough love to them, uh, you've got to put them on other, less damaging drugs... But but this idea is fascinating to me. What what if the real cure to this stuff isn't all of those things? What if the cure could be as simple as connection? As a pastor, it also makes me wonder about a lot of the other things that we see in people's lives, things that are damaging or destructive. And I I begin to wonder how many other things in life, how many other maladies in life are a result of isolation, of disconnection, depression, depression maybe? Again, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I know rats are different than humans. I know there are a lot of factors, and yet I think depression and the rise of depression in our world as we are getting more and more disconnected, more and more isolated. Could there be a link there? Or what about other bad habits that we all struggle with, depending on who we are? Maybe it's uh, pornography addiction or um, unrestrained sexuality or eating disorders Maybe it's even cutting, which is hugely uh, on the rise in younger communities. Or or what about just our negative self-image, or our perfectionism, or our self-hatred? See, in life we tend to see all of these as separate issues, separate issues caused by different things with separate cures. And yet maybe, just maybe, the root of all of them is isolation, isolation. See, that makes sense to me, and and just again, in my own experience, and this is not scientific, this is not research-based, but here's what I know. In all of the struggles that I've experienced in my life, especially those personal struggles that I've had, as long as I was struggling in isolation, as long as I was struggling in darkness, as long as I was struggling alone, as long as I was struggling in secrecy, those things owned me. Does anyone else know what I'm talking about? But the moment that I came out of isolation or or people grabbed me and they brought me out of my isolation and I came into community and I started struggling along with others, that's when things started changing. That's when I started finding freedom. See, perhaps there is a simple and overlooked cure for so many of the problems and the struggles that we have in life. And maybe that cure is nothing more than connection. That's what I want to talk to you today about. I, I want to share with you just this, this idea that I'm becoming convinced of, that isolation is the greatest threat to our wholeness in life and our, our understanding of ourselves as people that God have, uh, has created us to be, our, our true God-given identity. That isolation is the greatest threat to that. And on the flip side, I, I want to share with you this idea, and I want to explore this together, that perhaps connection, connection, Something as simple as connection. Perhaps connection is the very thing that can help us finally figure out who we are in this pursuit of self-understanding. And not only that, maybe connection is the key to actually living out who we are once we know. I think it's true for everyone. It was also true for a guy named Peter, a guy that we've been studying the last few weeks of the series. I don't know if you picked that up if you've been with us. Each week we've been looking at Peter's life. And Peter was a follower of Jesus. He was one of the first two witnesses of the resurrection. He was a guy who shortly after the resurrection, Jesus called him and and gave him a a whole new identity. He said, Peter, you used to be a fisherman. You used to be a guy who made a lot of big mistakes. Now I'm claiming you, and I'm calling you into something else. Peter even changed his name. He said, Peter, you're going to be my rock, and you're going to take care of my people, and you're going to lead my movement forward. And, And surprisingly, Peter, this guy who was a simple fisherman who who didn't really know much about anything in life, didn't really get out of the, the region that he grew up in. He becomes this powerful leader in the church. Last week we even saw as, as God used him to work miracles in people's lives, and, and he became this man of character and strength and integrity. I mean, his identity began to change because of who Jesus called him to be. But lest we get confused, Peter was not a self-made man, and He wasn't only just a a God-made man. What we're going to see this week is that Peter was also a product of his community, of of the connections that he had in his life, of his relationships. And so we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2 today, um, which which is an interesting story because it comes not from Peter's perspective. It comes from the perspective of one of Peter's friends, a guy by the name of Paul. And uh, it, it shares through Paul's eyes a very unflattering incident in Peter's life, where Peter was not living in accordance with his identity, and Paul has to get into his business about it a little bit, which is never comfortable, never fun, but it's absolutely necessary, and it's one of the reasons that connection is so important. So, we're gonna look at this in Galatians chapter 2. You can look in your Bible or your smartphone through U version, or you can follow along right here. It's, it's pretty short. It starts off this way it says, When Cephas came to Antioch, now who's Cephas? Peter. Now, this is maybe part of the problem with guys in the Bible trying to figure out their identity. They have so many names, it must be confusing. Um, so Peter's called Simon Peter, or Peter, or Cephas. Here he's going to be referred to as Cephas. So uh, this is, again, through Paul's eyes. He's t- telling a story about his friend Peter. It says, when, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is strong language. He's saying, when when he came into town, I had to check him about something because he was clearly in the wrong about what he was doing. Well, what was he in the wrong about? Let's see. Paul says, for before certain men came from James, and I'll get to that in a minute, so before these guys came to visit us, he used to, Peter used to, eat with the Gentiles. But when these other guys arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, another guy, was led astray. Now, it's it's kind of maybe confusing for you to follow all this, so let me just give you some of the backstory. In the early church, already, there were factions, which maybe makes you feel better about our church, or or the churches you belong to in the past, that that we just kind of, as people, tend to divide ourselves up into different groups, and we have a hard time getting along. It's just part of our identity, I guess. It's, It's part of who we are as sinful people. In the early church, there were these two predominant groups. There were the Jewish Christians. They were called the circumcision group there. And they were, they were Christians who believed that in order to be a, a Christian, to follow Jesus, you had to be Jewish first. And so they followed all of the Jewish laws. They made the Jewish sacrifices. They ate Jewish food. They went through all the Jewish rituals. Kind of the number one being, if you were a man, the ritual of circumcision. Circumcision. That's why they're called the circumcision group. So so they kind of believe that, Now, you can't just begin to follow Jesus. you got to become a Jew first. That has to be a part of your identity. Well, well, the early church wrestled with this, and they came to the determination that that wasn't wasn't exactly right. That wasn't true to what God had said. And and so they said, no, no, no. For for these Gentile people who also have heard about Jesus, they believe that he rose from the dead. They believe that he's the son of God. We're not going to make them become Jewish before they become Christian. That doesn't make any sense. And so there are these Gentile Christians. Got that? So you have the the Jewish Christians or the circumcision group who really demanded on Jewish customs. Then you have the Gentile Christians and, and they can eat what they want and they don't have to follow the rituals of Judaism. They just get to follow Jesus. Now Peter was raised as a Jew and yet because he knew Jesus and Jesus had given him truth and set him free from this stuff. He didn't feel compelled to live under the Jewish regulations anymore. He understood what his identity was, that his identity was found in Christ and what Christ had done for him. So Peter's living out his freedom. He's hanging out with these Gentile Christians and, uh, and he's eating whatever he wants, you know, eating with them. He's hanging out with people that Judah, Jew, Judaism would have said were unclean people. But he doesn't care because he knows the truth. But then, Things start to change when these certain men show up from James, it said. These certain men from James, James was a, a leader of, in Jerusalem as a part of the church. And, uh, and so these these church officials come to visit where, where Peter is. And, uh, and when the church officials come, you know, the leaders from the denomination, what does Peter do? Well, he puts robes on and starts playing the organ again. He says, no, not really. What he does is he says these guys are coming, uh, and he starts backing away from his, his boldness, from his freedom. He starts saying, well, maybe I shouldn't eat with those people, and maybe I shouldn't eat their food, and, and he starts separating himself from these Gentile people, Gentile believers, because he wants to uh, maintain the favor of, of these, uh, these, these leaders, these church leaders. Now, isn't it true that this is what we all do, even on things that we're very clear about, convictions that we hold deeply, or understandings of of who we are, who God wants us to be, things can be so clear for us, and yet, with a little bit of pressure, a little bit of weakness, throw in some fear, we start backpedaling on even very important parts of our identity or calling. And when we do that, there's only one word for that in the Bible, by the way, the word is, we become hypocrites. Now, I know that seems strong, because we use this word in a very strong way, but, but literally, Do you know what this word means, what it refers to? A hypocrite is nothing more in the ancient world than an actor. Someone who plays a part. It's it's a technical term for an actor. Now, Paul uses this word a couple of times when he's talking about Peter. And what he's saying is, is Peter, you know better. Peter, this is not who you really are. right, Right now, because these guys came into town from Jerusalem, you're now playing a part. You're pretending. You're acting and you're being someone who you're not. You're acting in accordance with things that you know are not true. And don't we all do the same? I mean, really. Even when we're clear on who God has called us to be, aren't there times when, again, out of fear, out of weakness, out of pressure or intimidation, we, we back off and we start playing a part. We start pretending to be someone else. See, this is why connection is so important, because I want to show you what happens in Peter's life when this starts to happen, when when he starts playing a part and being inauthentic to who he is. Again, this is Paul. Paul says, when I saw that they were not acting, right, when they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, they were acting in line with something else, they were being hypocrites, I said to Peter in front of all of them, hey, Peter, you're a Jew, right? And yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. You're eating food you shouldn't eat and you don't care about this stuff. So how is it then that you now force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Again, Peter, how is it that you're acting? You know this isn't true, Peter. And yet you're playing a part. See, I I told you today that that what I want to do is I want to explore this idea that isolation is one of the greatest threats to our identity. And I believe that's true. But on the flip side, I want to explore the idea that connection is absolutely essential if you ever want to know, to to really know who you are, but if you ever want to keep living out who you are and not falling off into hypocrisy. And, And today, that's what I want to do right now. And I want to talk about some things that only connection can bring into your life. Things that isolation can't give you. This is the reason that you cannot go it alone when it comes to your identity. You can't just go on a walkabout and figure out who you are. It doesn't work that way. You need connection in order to discover who you are, but also to live it out. And first and foremost, only connection can bring accountability. You can take a note on this, because this stuff's going to be important for you later. Right? I mean, that's what we saw between Paul and Peter. Paul spoke a word into Peter's life, and he said, Peter, this is not who you are, and you know better. We all need voices like that in our life. They don't necessarily come from within. We can too easily deceive ourselves when it comes to this stuff. I know few people who actually can look at themselves and call themselves out when, they are, when they're being hypocritical. We all have blind spots. But just a nuance here when it comes to accountability. These people... Shouldn't be strangers in our life. We shouldn't look to strangers to hold us accountable. And as strangers, we shouldn't try to hold other people accountable, right? And we as Christians, we're terrible at this stuff. We kind of believe that it is our job to hold everybody accountable, right? It's our job to be the moral policeman of our communities, of our neighborhoods, of, of the whole United States. The Christians have to be the people who hold people accountable, even if they don't know us, even if they don't, we don't know them, even if we don't care about them. And so we often get this, this image of us as Christians, which unfortunately is, is true, where we are these, these picky people, we are standing up for truth, we're going to speak truth to you, we're going to tell you about your life and where you're off base, and, and we're going to preach truth. Even to people who are total strangers. See, that's that's never good for anything. Only connection Can bring accountability. There has to be connection. You can't do that for a stranger. Uh, In fact, if if you've ever experienced this, I have, where a Christian comes up to you and in the name of God starts pointing at things in your life and they don't even know you. You know what? If that ever happens to you, you've got my full pastoral permission to give them a hand gesture. (laughs) What? I mean, just say bye. Just like go get lost. Bye. Hand gesture, what are you thinking of, people? Right? No, because that's, that's not what God intends. If God wants to speak a word in your life, He'll raise up someone like Paul. And that's why you need to foster those connections. A friend, someone who knows you, someone who loves you, someone through whom you can hear those words as words of love, not just truth, but truth and love together. But, but again, Christians are so bad at this. Because we just like to, you know, in a disconnected, isolated way, point out things in other people's lives. But, but the reality is that if, if you want accountability in your life, and we all do because we all are hypocrites at times. We start acting like we're someone other than we really are, than who we really are. If you want to foster a, a, a accountability in your life, that, then you've got to have connection. The second thing is um, affirmation. Affirmation. I, I, I love this one, maybe because I'm not good at it. I'm better at accountability than affirmation sometimes. But here's what I know, that in my life, there are things that, that people have affirmed in me, and they've helped me understand a part of my identity that I never would have figured out on my own. Do you know what I mean? I'm not just talking about like, oh, you know, general affirmation, but people have said very specific things over the years. Uh, I remember very early on in my life, I remember a teacher saying to me, and it was, it was really more of a, of a scolding statement, uh, she said to me, she said, Dion, you need to be careful what you say, because people really listen to you. And I just thought that was, you know, teacher talk. You know, I, I didn't think people listened to me any more than they listened to anyone else. And then over the course of my life, there was another teacher and then a coach and, and, a, and a mentor who, who all started saying the same thing. And, and over time, I realized, oh my gosh, th- this is something unique about me. God has just given me a voice that, that for some crazy reason, people want to listen to. Except when my sermon goes over 30 minutes. But you know, that's fine. It works until then. And, uh, and, and I started to realize it about myself, and that became huge for me, figuring out who I am and what God wanted me to do with my life. But see, I never, ever would have been able to figure that out on my own. When you've got connection in your life, you can begin to understand uniquenesses in your personality. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in Playing to Your Strengths. But you see, I also believe that, that the lack of this kind of connection, living in isolation for too long, I believe this is part of the reason in life that we so often fall prey to just bad things and negative mindsets because we lose perspective on who we are and what God is doing in our life and around us without the voice of affirmation and without the voice of people saying, no, 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 you're not worthless. In fact, you're really great at this. I think affirmation is so powerful. Next, discovery. Discovery. Not just self-discovery, that would kind of go under number two, but just discovery about a broader picture of the world. See, discovery is really powerful. I, I can only imagine what happened to Peter when he started hanging out with Gentiles. People whom he had believed his whole life were just kind of bad people, inferior people. And I can only imagine when Peter started hanging out with Gentiles who also loved Jesus, how that began to open up his mind and he began to discover things about himself and his prejudices and his biases, and also about the world around him. See, that's what I love about connection. It it opens up our minds to see the world in in a bigger way. And when we see the world in a bigger way, we often get greater understanding of how we fit into the world. I'll tell you, that's why I'm excited about this new uh, training grounds exhibit that Jeff mentioned out in the lobby. Hope you have a chance to take a look at it over the next few weeks. And I think it's going to make some of you mad. It's going to bother you. And the whole point is is discovery, opening up your mind to begin to see the world differently, not just to frustrate you or or to make you mad or to challenge your ideology, but ultimately so that you can understand more about how God intends for you to fit in this world that may look different than you originally thought. Number four, support. I mean, this one may be obvious to you that uh, you, you need connection in order to support you through hard times. And that's a good thing. No one would argue that. You know, if you go through tragedy, it's good to have people who are, who are there bringing you meals or speaking words of comfort or praying for you. But specifically, what I mean here about this is, is that too often, too often, we become our trauma. Have you seen that happen? Too often, we become our trauma and we let hardship or suffering or struggle become our whole identity. And so we say, I am a widow, and that may be true, but that becomes the only thing that we are. Or we say, I am an addict, and that may be true of us again, but, but that becomes the whole picture of our identity in our minds. Or we say, I am a, a survivor. See, when you're connected to healthy people, do you, know you know what they do? When you start to see yourself through the lens of trauma alone and that becomes too big and your whole identity becomes swallowed up in your hardship, do you know what they do? They not only love you and encourage you, but you know what they do? They remind you that you're more than your trauma. They remind you that you're bigger than your struggle, you're more than your hardship, that who you are doesn't have to be summed up in the hard things that you've experienced. And that's really powerful. And the last it kind of goes with it, worth or value. Yeah, I don't know how any of us can ever discover what we call self-worth or value, living in isolation. I I just don't believe you can. Because I believe it's only when when people make time for you and they pour into you and they speak into your life that you begin to see that, that through other people's eyes, you're worth the effort, you're worth the energy, you're worth the time. I'd sum it up this way, and really sum up all of it this way, that so much of who we are is formed by who loves us. Do you know that? Your identity can't be formed in a vacuum, that that who you are is formed. It's a product of those who love you most. And today I just want to remind you of something that I hope you know. That when we talk about people who love us first and foremost, I want to remind you that Jesus loves you. Gosh, I know that sounds so Sunday school of me, and yet it's profound. If you let it be, it'll change your life. That Jesus, the the perfect son of God, loves you so much that he willingly gave his life. He willingly died in order to end this this stupid war that we waged on God. I mean, who do we think we are? Here we are, we're, we're the creatures, and we make this war, we announce this war on our creator, and he could wipe us out, he could annihilate us yet what has he done? He sent his son into the world, and that son willingly gave up his life to end the war, to bring us peace, to take our shame away. Why? Because he loves you. And he thinks you're worth it. And you see, when you live under his love, and, and not just talk about his love, or kind of nod to his love, and I think a lot of us do that, but, but when you live under his love, when, when you are connected to him, when you're in a relationship with him, when, when, when you know him as he knows you, It will be the most formative thing in your life. It will change your whole identity. Today, if you struggle with identity, if you struggle with understanding who you are, if you don't like who you are, my my challenge to you is get more connected to Jesus because when you realize how much he loves you, and not just when you realize it, but when you begin to live under it, it will change your life. See, you can't hate yourself anymore when you know how much he loves you. And you can't go on beating yourself up for all of the mistakes that you make and all of the weaknesses you have in your life when you know that he forgives you. And you can't go on deceiving yourself about who you are or deceiving yourself about stuff in your life. When when, when he is constantly being the truth and speaking the truth into your life, it simply can't happen. So much of who we are is formed by who loves us. And I just think if we only could know and and take hold of the fact that Jesus really loves us. It changed our lives. Of course, this isn't only Jesus, though. God also gave us people. In the beginning, he said, it's not good for man to be alone, and he still means it. Now, throughout this, uh, I've kind of talked about isolation and connection. As if either you're isolated or connection. The truth is, we're, we're kind of all in between, right? And all of us have connections in our life. We all have community. Few of us are completely isolated. We have uh, de facto communities, many of us. We, we, we don't have intentional communities, but we have people of of uh, people we go to school with, people we play sports with, people we work with, people we grew up with, friends from, you know, from our street or our neighborhood. And uh, that becomes our community. But here's what I'd say to you. If, if what I've been describing today, all these things that a, a connection or community does, they bring Things like accountability and affirmation and support and discovery and and a sense of worth. If your community, the community that you have, if they don't do that for you, if they're not bringing this into your life, if they're not helping you figure out who you really are and live that out with courage, then you've got the wrong community. And if I were you, I would stop at nothing, I would make this my life's work. Until I found a community of people who could bring all of these things into my life. And if you don't know how to do that, if, if you're just kind of frustrated that, that there are people aren't coming into your life, maybe you need to take the initiative and be the catalyst for forming that kind of community around yourself. Goodness, it, it could be as easy as you just taking one of the Growing Deepers that we write for the series and walking with some people saying, hey, I want to have a discussion about identity. And walking with them through this. And, and you never know, God may foster community out of that thing. See, I am convinced that isolation is one of the greatest threats, if not the greatest threat, to you actually knowing and living out your identity as a person that God has created and loved and has plans for. I believe isolation, time and again, is is working maladies in our life. And on the flip side, I believe that connection is what can help us understand who we are, but also live it out. That starts with Jesus, but it also goes on to people. And if you don't have that in your life, either one, I want you to seek after it. And in fact, I want to pray for you right now. Lord, I, I come to you today thanking you for your incredible, incredible